afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Dark Delight Podcast with Frankie Pal and the drums and Beans. So we have an interesting show today. Um, we're going to first talk about the new indictment that came down from Trump, uh, from Trump Smith, from Jack Smith yesterday about Donald Trump. Um, I have a number of things to say about it. There's several clips. And then we're going to get into the interview with the Attorney General of Missouri, Andrew Bailey, who was gracious to give me some of his time yesterday. For everyone out there in podcast land, if you look in the show notes, also on Rumble, if you're in the live chat after this is over, it'll be there. There's a link to the Twitter space that I did with Attorney General Bailey after the interview, and there are two sets of topics discussed. So go and listen to the space. It's recorded. It has like some viewer questions and stuff in it. It's really good. And then the interview was great, too. So you get an hour of A.G. Bailey. Really kind of him to give us that time. But first, but first. Okay. So yesterday, Jack Smith indicted Donald Trump on three charges of, of nonsense. I have a lot of feelings about this, um, Frank. Number three one. More, three more attempted murders. First of all, there is no, I just want to make sure everybody understands whatever you think about the indictment. There is no way he's not being convicted of this stuff in D.C. Just in front of this judge who has handled all the J6 cases with all the verdicts she has and all the sentencing she's doled down in the D.C. jury pool. There is no way he is not being convicted of this stuff. Just That's what I was saying. You know, this is what you, well, you, other Julie Kelly, others have been talking about for a long time with this system, these judges, that that district. Um, what they were really doing was setting precedent for the guy that they really wanted. You know, making people that they don't like suffer. I mean, that's just a they get uh, semi-sexual gratification out of that. But they wanted to make sure that all this was was a, a set standard for when they got Trump. So, um, so I, I guess we're, I guess we're just, is it really just that, uh, that simple that this is, they better start just planning for appeal from now? Yes. Yeah. Clear, clear, clear cut. Like there's no other, there's no, it's just, that's what's going to happen. Just everybody don't be surprised. Um, don't be surprised. It's, 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 Will it go to appeal? Of course. Will the D.C. Circuit reaffirm the lower court? 80-20, yes. 80-20, yes. And then it'll go to the Supreme Court. That's what's going to end up happening here. Now, if you've not read it, it's 45 pages long. It is a... The thing that I'm upset about, in addition to all the other things, is that this is going to be the record of 2020. Like... This is going to be what people read and this is going to be what people think. And I said on Twitter yesterday, if you didn't know what actually happened in 2020 and you just read this indictment and said, oh my gosh, thank goodness we stopped this traitorous dictator from continuing to wreak the havoc that he's wreaked on the people. That's what you would come away with because it makes it look like there was no fraud in 2020, nothing below board happened they were just manufacturing all of this stuff to keep him in power like that's how this indictment is written there are some things that bothered me about what was said and how it was handled and all of that in the indictment the way they presented it 
But I'm not going to come to any conclusions on that stuff until I see the defense. Now, there's some rumbling out there, Frank, that the defense is going to be, I just listened to my attorneys. I didn't know they were telling me the lie, a lie. I didn't know that my attorneys were lying to me about the fraud. That's what, you know, somebody's saying, some people are saying the, the defense of this is going to be. There are six unindicted co-conspirators. We know one of them is um, Sidney Powell. One of them is Rudy Giuliani. One of them is um, Eastwood. One of them is um, Jason Miller. The political consultant is Jason Miller. And there are two that people are, they're both attorneys, the other two. And people are waffling back on who they could be. I'm not even, I'm not even going to render a guess as to who they can be. I have no idea. No idea. But those unindicted co-conspirators are going to be the people that he could mount a defense to say misled him. There, there, there's another thing in there that bothers me, and that is that the electors that they... Finding an alternate slate of electors is something that the left did in 2016 in almost every single state. So I don't even want to hear that this is... If you use the same standards and you substituted Adam Schiff into this indictment, he could go away to, to jail for decades on the impeachment stuff. And they did so much more. I mean, you th you think about you think about what they're what they're um, basing this really all on. The driving factor in all this is January sixth. The January sixth, two thousand twenty one, is the driving factor. That's what they're trying to drive it's this all home with. A few hours in Washington D.C with all of the questions unanswered, with all of the anomalies and everything else going on, we know what the hell that day was. They used those few hours as a as a way to drive this down everybody's throats and legitimize what they're doing in the courts. Meanwhile, in 2016, not only did you have the losing candidate uh, proclaiming to the world that she had been robbed for many months afterwards. You had all of Hollywood coming out begging people to go rogue with the Electoral College. Yep. You then then you had the actual government itself, the bureaucracy itself, protested for three years, launching an investigation into uh, into a collusion that never happened, which essentially was three years of saying the election was not legitimate right. and we're going to find out. It was three years of protest. It was three years of January 6th. This is, where the this is why, Frank, what the Oath Keepers did when they were like arguing their case, blaming Donald Trump for everything, was really just effed up to me, even though they were trying to save themselves, because that's basically what Jack Smith did here. Donald Trump lied to everybody and told them the election was stolen. The election wasn't stolen. Then he basically told them, and and the way that, okay, two things. Number one, through this indictment, it, it makes it appear as though Pence told Donald Trump numerous times before January 6th that he was not going to do what Trump was asking him to do. But Donald Trump told everybody that he was. Because remember, we were like, oh my gosh, he's actually going to do this. Like Pence, and then he put out the letter that day saying he wasn't going to do it. And we were all like, why did he hang his hat on, on, on Mike Pence? Well, it appears Trump knew the entire time that Pence had no intention of doing what, you know, what was expected of him, I guess, um, January 6th, which pisses me off because there were so many other ways we could have gotten this accomplished None of the right things were brought before the courts. It's just, it's a nightmare. 
And he hung his hat on Pence, which I think was a dumb, 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 dumb decision. But is it criminal? I don't think so. It's not criminal. Okay, even if you accept the indictment is true, pretend for a second. I'm not saying I do. I'm just saying pretend that what they said in the indictment is true. It is not criminal for a politician to lie to somebody. And if it was, holy crap, the jails would be full of the damn politicians. Ain't that the, like, I mean, it's not criminal for a politician to lie. If it were, Nancy Pelosi would be behind bars. Adam Schiff would be behind bars. He, he brought an impeachment upon a president on, on, based on a mountain of lies. It's not criminal. What they're doing here is criminalizing, quote, disinformation. With, and misinformation and malinformation because if D Donald Trump believed any of what he was saying was true even though everybody was telling him it wasn't the Secretary of State of Georgia the people in Arizona his own team everybody was telling him that the election was 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 there was not enough fraud to overturn the results everyone was telling him that we know that now he didn't believe any of them that doesn't make what he's saying criminal I know I, I, I mean, just think of the implications of that. Think, think of the implications of this. So, so at what level, at what level does not believing anything that your friends or your parents or anybody in your life, your, your, your financial advisor, at what level, what's the threshold of not believing what somebody says and expressing an, a, an alternative opinion become criminal like when do you actually have to start is it only when you become an elected official and you start talking about things like elections uh it, what is it? it is it down to a, a a a personal level are you committing a crime every time you have a different opinion who cares i mean i mean that's San, what's that, his name in santos or whatever his name is he literally lied to people to get elected, and he's not even facing any cr crime on that. He's facing crime on other, he's facing criminal indictment on or, or ethics violations or whatever on other things. Not even the fact that he literally lied to people about everything to get elected. So you can't, like, what are we doing here? But there's a couple of interesting opinions I want to play the clips of. Here's one of them. I don't think that this is going to happen only because of the judge that this case is in front of. But here's a perspective from, I guess this is a Trump attorney. Here we go. And I don't, here. thing I will say, though, in 2020, the, Mr. Trump's campaign had a few weeks to gear up and present evidence, and it was very difficult. We now have the ability in this case to issue our own subpoenas, and we will relitigate every single issue in the 2020 election in the context of this litigation. It, it, it gives President Trump an opportunity that he has never had before, which is to have subpoena power since January 6th in a way that can be exercised in federal but court. What That's not going to happen. It's not. I, I'm it's it's a Trump attorney, John Lauro. Fine. If he thinks for a second that this judge is going to allow any of this, he's he's disillusioned completely. I mean, it does go to a fundamental part of this indictment, which is there was no fraud. And he told everyone there was. 
So thereby, if he can prove there was fraud enough to overturn the election, his claims are true, then he didn't commit a crime. You see how it goes? But if they think that the judge is going to, there is going to be a number of different ways this judge is going to exclude that stuff. You think she's going to? No. He's not in a fair court. He's in a kangaroo court in D.C. He will be convicted on these things. End of story. I cannot foresee any universe where they don't convict him on it. Now, hey, they've been looking just for something to hit, one thing to hit in a place where they know that they can arrange it. One thing. I mean, we're, we're, they're managing very short timelines. Obviously, this is all about in the immediacy, 2024. But, you know, uh, for, for a man who is flirting, flirting with 80, 80, uh, you know, at 80 years old. This is also a good way to end a the, the viability of a political career, if not a life, if they're actually able to put him in jail for well, over a decade. If, it, and then, if if they put him in jail, Frank, and a Republican wins the presidency, the very first thing that Republican will do is pardon him. Thank God. It's going to happen. So he has at least that going for him. And I know everyone in the audience is going to freak out when I say this, but I have to. I was listening to an interview the other day, DeSantis floated something pretty interesting. He wants to make it so that people who are charged and in D.C. courts and they live in a different district can bring the case back to their own home district and be tried there so that they at least have some shot at a fair and impartial jury. That's a great idea. There's no reason why that can't be implemented with the DOJ. It can be. It can be a policy. There's no reason why another federal court can't hear a crime that was, com you know what I'm saying? So that's one way to get around this in the future because D.C. is so damn corrupt and ridiculous. It's not even a state. Well, this is going to have to be somebody. Other, well, I, I don't know. I, DeSantis isn't going to win the presidency. So there's it's all I, I think that if Donald Trump went to if Donald Trump went to jail, they're essentially canceling the election. Essentially, this is one step toward actually saying, all right, well, uh, we're canceling it. We have to if, we're, we're going to just postpone the if, whole damn thing. If Donald Trump goes to jail, he can still run. There's nothing stopping him. He can run from a prison cell. He can. Right. Right. And then that and it, well, in, you think that, he's going to drop out? The, Frick no. <laughs> that would be the. Uh, I mean, think about the low there as well. I mean, it's just it, at that point, it's just over. I, I don't know. It's just all of this. It's it already is in my eyes, to be honest. But um, I don't know. Let's see what what, what happens with the the convictions and the appeals. And I was just saying yesterday. It's just so. This is why for every fleeting moment that we get with testimony that comes from a person like Devin Archer to affirm things that we already knew, the psychopaths on the other side. Um, they'll just produce an indictment based on nothing but pure so, sadistic sexual fantasy. Somebody just said something really great in the chat. Are they going to have Secret Service serve time with him if he's in jail? Secret Service is going to have to be with him. That's interesting. I, I mean... That, that, that would be. That would be interesting. Um, I have another clip here. Where is it? It's um, Victor Davis Hanson, who had a great spot on, here it is. Well, here's, 
Here it is. Jonathan Turley. Here's Jonathan Turley, and then we'll do Victor Davis Hanson. To tell you, I am uh, really quite astonished by much of this indictment so far. Uh, it regurgitates a lot of the allegations against Trump, and there is room for criticism uh, in terms of the claims being made about stolen elections. Uh, but it's criminalizing all of that. You know, it, it states in the indictment the president spent months spreading false rumors and allegations of election irregularities. Really, is that a criminal issue? I mean, is that is that the basis of this conspiracy? Uh, it seems to me rather uh, loose at the joints to tell you. It, it's it's not just loose. It, it's, you know, if you look at the. It proves the it, it proves the election is nonsense is what it does for any for any body politic. To to focus all their attention on different on prosecuting difference of opinion and 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 it's saying that that is the that is the the, the greatest threat that a so-called democracy is facing at a given time and they need to take people and destroy the i mean it is just i mean when you have to censor people like this and you go this far and you have to doll it up this poorly you're just proving that there was nothing kosher about 2020 you're proving it. I, I mean, I mean, uh, essentially, if all things were well and good, you have a man in the White House right now, if you want to call him that, who collected 81 million plus votes. There is nothing standing in your way. He destroyed the vote totals of the first black president of the United States. There's nothing standing in your way. Why are you doing this? Great questions. It's true. He was the most popular president in history, Joe Biden history. was. History. Ever. 81 million people, like you said. More people than voted for Barack Obama. An old white racist. I mean. Destroyed Barack Obama by millions and millions of votes. Why would you need to do any of this? He would steamroll. I mean, forget about even Joe Biden. You are showing, you just showed the world in 2020 that you have a voting block. Who will... You you're un you cannot you, yeah, be beaten ever right ever you you're right it's fine um somebody's saying there was confirmation that came out last night that number six the political consultant is Jason Miller and I can find that clip for you Fox News reported on it said they've confirmed it that's that's where we're at with that I'll find the clip while we're doing this if you want um but here is this is a great little three minute four minute long thing. You know the breaking news, the indictment of former President Trump, another indictment, four charges based on the activities, the actions that led to January 6th. They're there on the screen. Victor Davis Hanson is joining us now. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. He's the author of Dying Citizen and somebody acutely aware of how dangerous this moment is uh, for the country. Uh, sir, thank you for coming on. What, what is your reaction yeah. to this uh, latest indictment for the man that uh, is really the only opponent for uh, Joe Biden here in the 2024 election? Well, there was no really data. There was no evidence. There was no order to do this, and I command you to do that. I mean, he said, walk over to the Capitol peacefully and protest. That's the First Amendment right. According to the logic of this, Rob, we would have to indict all those Hollywood stars in 2016 that got on TV and said, 
electors do not honor the vote of your yeah. states. Do not honor it. We would have to indict Jimmy Carter because he said Donald Trump was not legitimately elected. He was created by, Don by the Russians. We'd have to go after Hillary Clinton. She said, this election is not legitimate, and I am joining the resistance. That was an active metaphor of the World War II resistance. We could get, we could go back to 2004 and say 35 uh, House representatives tried to deny George Bush's reelection by throwing out the Ohio results. Jill Stein sued to stop the voting machines. It's it's part of the it's part of the political process. Are we going to go after Stacey Abrams and say, you were trying to overthrow the election. You said that you were governor yep. and you went around the country trying to convince people of that. Is that insurrection or interference? So I, I don't understand. I think what it is, is that they're piling up indictments and it's sort of a lawfare. Donald yeah. Trump has spent 40 to $45 million draining his campaign. They're draining his time. And this is the beginning, Rob. It's not the end. They're going to keep doing this and doing this and doing this yeah. until there's some there's some deterrence against it. And they're, and they're costing themselves. What they're doing is dividing the country like crazy because for, for most people, they can see how obviously political it is. And you see how scary this government can be. And the statement from Jack Smith uh, that we saw today, the two minutes that he spoke, you know, to me, I, I, I really could feel what is, I think, the growing theme here, especially around January 6th, that our government thinks that all of this belongs to them. It doesn't belong to the people. Uh, they are their own team. They're running the show. They don't care much about what the people really think anymore. And they are very enraged about January 6th because it was the first time that they really had to feel uh, something that was that powerful. I mean, they, they're, they're very protected by a lot of the things that I think a lot of that feeling to this country about the summer of 2020 nonsense, how awful that was do you think the government cared about that they didn't care no I mean that's the big question isn't it there's no equality under the law so the American people are saying if you destroy subpoena devices or you erase emails is that a felony like Hillary Clinton if you take papers out when you were a senator when you had no prerogative to declassify them the or vice president and nobody I'd, knows until you're caught 16 years later is that a felony that joe biden did we could go on and on and on and on with for almost everything that donald trump is indicted for whether it's the phone mm. call to ukraine you've got a biden phone call it's almost a perfect symmetry and they have deliberately weaponized the uh, jurisprudence of this country and and you know the sad thing is people have lost confidence in the integrity and the equality of the laws and when you have now that he's got a phone ringing. occur you don't have a country anymore <laughs> at least a constitutional state it's true you always put it so well sir so you know i mean he's you know it, it's true and we've, we've said it before because it just goes back to the idea of projection but everything the the there there is symmetrical alignment of everything between joe biden and donald trump everything they wanted there to be for donald trump with things like ukraine and impeachment and all that stuff it, it was just the com it, it was, was yep it was so mirrored it, it it's, it's incredible crazy. it's crazy you, th you think about what they could have done to trump and anybody else if they didn't have to make things up and make all of their legal pursuits a matter of perspective it's it's really it it would be i mean they they would have they would have had him away long long ago if things yeah all right so 
off the heels of this, we're going to move into um, a case against criminalizing misinformation, which is the Missouri v. Biden case. We're going to play the interview that I did yesterday with uh, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey, and we'll come back on the other side. Guys, don't miss this. And remember, in the links below, I'll put the link to the space, the interview that we did um, on Twitter. So enjoy, and we will be right back. This is the this hey, is the the twenty three minute. This is the twenty three minute. You're gonna go in and um. Let me get my rumble out. Work at work. Hey, out now. good morning, everyone. I am honored to be here with Attorney General Andrew Bailey from the state of Missouri, who has obviously been working really hard on the Missouri v. Biden case, which is something that if you've been paying any attention to me over the past year, you know we have gotten covered from from soup to nuts. So thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It, it's been quite a whirlwind, this case so far. And I guess first I'd like to ask what your thoughts are about Judge Terry Doty and, and, and how he's been in this case. Well, we, we like uh, the venue. We like the judge. We think that we're in a good spot. The judge is accurately and fairly calling balls and strikes in the case. I mean, we've uncovered this, you know, relationship of coercion, and collusion between the Biden White House across a spectrum of federal bureaucratic agencies with uh, big tech social media corporations. And it's a, a relationship that has ended up in the violation of the First Amendment right to free speech that should be enjoyed by all Americans. And at the end of the day, we're going to continue to fight to protect the Constitution. And I think you can see from the evidence we put on in court and the court subsequent order that uh, the judge understands the, the, the depth of the problem here. And that's why uh, the, the nationwide injunction that he issued on July 4th was so important. We've got to build a wall of separation between tech and state. The first brick of that wall was laid as a result of this lawsuit on July 4th. And we're going to keep fighting to build that wall in order to protect the, the election that's upcoming next year. Yeah, and, and that's like a big thing that people are saying, you know, if this injunction holds at the Fifth Circuit, because they've obviously appealed it, uh, they're going to appeal it again to the SCOTUS, right? So this is going to be a little while ongoing here. But if if the Fifth Circuit reverses or or keeps the, you know, Judge Doty's order as is and the injunction stands, will the Supreme Court also stay the Fifth Circuit's decision as they wait to hear this? You know, there's a lot of legal process that we're going to have to go through before we can answer that question. You know, it's always a, a bit of a, a, a crapshoot to to guess what the Supreme Court will do. But I'll say this, in a decision that was handed down in May of, of this year, uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch in Arizona v. Mayorkas opined that it seemed uh, likely that the federal government had violated the First Amendment in coordinating and colluding and coercing big tech social media to silence uh, Americans' voices who questioned the legitimacy of vaccines or the legitimacy of lockdowns or, or, or mask mandates. And so, you know, the Supreme Court sees this one coming. And uh, I think we'll have a favorable tribunal there as well. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, these are the worst First Amendment violations in this nation's history. So we got to continue to fight to protect free speech in America. The whole purpose of the, the right to free speech in the Constitution is to protect us from the government. And here the government is weaponizing big tech social media to do indirectly what they would be prohibited from doing directly. And so the court's going to stand up and take the right side on the Constitution. And we're, we're confident in the evidence we have thus far and that there's more to, to follow as well. Did you happen to listen to the weaponization hearing? Um, RFK was there. There was a reporter from Breitbart. You know, one of the, the lead attorneys on this case was was testifying as well. Did you hear one of the witnesses for the for the Democrats 
constantly was saying that this decision was vacated. Do you think that's just because she's ignorant of the law or is that the spin machine in action? Well, yeah, it's it's dripping with irony that the people who claim to be protecting us from misinformation are promulgating misinformation. I mean, that, that, that speaks to the dystopian Orwellian nature of this vast censorship enterprise and how depraved the left has become and its abdication and, and uh, you know, uh, attempt to subvert the First Amendment right to free speech. The whole idea behind the First Amendment is originally understood by the founders that we would have a, a free, fair and open marketplace of ideas uninhibited from government intrusion, that the, the remedy for false speech in this nation has always been counter speech, not government censorship. And that, you know, the, the idea that the government would come in and try to tell us what we should and shouldn't be talking about would, would run afoul of, of the founding principles of this nation, the legacy of freedom. And both sides of the aisle used to agree, agree upon that principle, but clearly the left has jettisoned that principle when it when it comes to big tech social media platforms. And so this is scary and dangerous stuff. So yeah, absolutely. It's completely hypocritical. Uh, you know, if you look at the speech that was censored that we've uh, revealed as a result of our lawsuit, the 20,000 pages of discovery that we've uncovered, the numerous depositions we've taken, you know, it's clear and evident from that evidence and certainly the judge in the, the trial court thought so that uh, there was a violation of the first amendment there and that the government had coerced and colluded with big tech social media so the the speech that was silenced was it was illegal to do so because it was protected core political speech protected by the first amendment so it was illegal to censor that speech but secondly it was truthful speech they actually deprived American citizens of information they needed upon which to make good decisions. And policymakers on behalf of the state were denied uh, access to information that was really critical in setting uh, state policy in response to the pandemic. But third, uh, the speech that was censored was almost exclusively conservative. Yep. So they targeted speech that was illegal to censor. It was a uh, conservative speech. They're, they're trying to put their thumb on the scale and, and, and you know silence any uh, opposing viewpoint. But then also it all ended up being truthful. So this is a, I mean, the, the judge has identified this as a, you know, dystopian scenario and I think that's a, an apt description I think one of the things that you guys have done so masterfully is weave this sort of tapestry between the government and the non-governmental organizations that are also obviously holding the water of the government using American tax dollars to do so and one of the craziest things was in the hearing because I went and attended it um, for the injunction the government's attorneys, the deputy attorney general, was arguing that 99% of the misinformation out there is conservative in nature. And the judge basically just gave a look like, seriously? Like, is this really what you're saying? My question is, how, how do we, when the government is standing up there basically saying to the judge that they can't let him know whether or not saying a COVID vaccine doesn't work is protected free speech, how do you fight that when you're dealing with a rogue Justice Department that doesn't even understand the founding bedrock of the Constitution anymore? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's why the, con the Constitution exists to protect us from government. And here the government has completely uh, neglected it, its responsibility in protecting citizens' rights and instead is, is attacking and, and infringing upon citizens' rights to free speech. That's scary stuff. And what you're specifically referring to is the May 26th hearing on our uh, request for preliminary injunction yep. where there's a colloquy between the trial court judge and the De Biden's Department of Justice. And so the judge asked a series of questions like, would it be uh, unconstitutional for the government to censor an American citizen's speech as it relates to vaccine hesitancy? And the, D the Biden's DOJ says, well, it depends. Can't commit to protecting what is blatantly core political speech. So then the judge goes back and says, okay, well, let's expand beyond COVID topics. Would it be illegal for the Biden administration to censor an American citizen's speech as it relates to questioning the legitimacy of an election? 
And the Biden's DOJ says, well, it depends. Again, they are completely uncommitted to the protections of the First Amendment. They are uncommitted to protecting Americans' First Amendment rights to free speech. And look at what happened after the judge issued its order on July 4th, 155-page trial court order with a nationwide injunction. But if you drill down to the final pages of that order, what the judge is actually saying, now he reviews the evidence. So 155 pages of mostly what he's doing is recounting the evidence we put on in court. This isn't just Attorney General Andrew Bailey making an argument. This is evidence that we set out in court under the federal rules of evidence and that the judge weighed and considered and laying out the injunction. But at the final pages, the actual order is federal government, you're not allowed to coordinate with big tech social media on core political speech. Yep. speech protected by the first amendment all the judge is saying is you can't violate the constitution <laughs> why on earth would biden's department of justice be in a race to appeal that decision and why could they in good conscience go to court and say judge we'll suffer irreparable harm if we're not allowed to violate the constitutional rights of americans <laughs> i mean again so this is scary stuff these are the worst first amendment violations in this nation's history and why that's why this fight is so important to protecting our constitution and it wouldn't matter, honestly, it, it, we ended up being right about the things we were censored about, right? I mean, we were right about 90% of them. But even if we were wrong, it doesn't matter. So can you explain how chilling it was for you to read about Jen Easterly of CISA using the term cognitive infrastructure to explain why CISA has venue over Americans' thoughts? Yeah, I mean, again, d downright Orwellian. And again, that's not Attorney General Andrew Bailey saying that, although I have said that. Uh, the <laughs> trial court judge said that as well and questioned the Depar Biden's Department of Justice on whether or not they had read, uh, you know, George Orwell's classic book, 1984. We're familiar with the Ministry of Oceania's Ministry of Truth uh, elucidated in that, that book. But yeah, I mean, look, there's kind of three phases to this censorship enterprise. It started with the deep state in 2020 as it relates to Joe Biden's, uh, excuse me, to Hunter Biden's laptop. So the Department of Justice was in, in uh, possession of Hunter Biden's laptop one year in the lead up to that election. And yet what we know is that the Department of Justice met with big tech social media corporations in San Francisco in the heart of the big tech community it, with increased frequency in the months and weeks leading up to the election cycle. And Elvis Chan, a, a senior official at the FBI who we've deposed as part of our uh, part of our case has said that, you know, certainly they ran tabletop drills to, to plant the seed with big tech social media, that there would be a, a Russian disinformation story related to Hunter, Bi Hunter Biden. And then on the eve of the New York Post breaking the story, uh, Elvis Chan was in direct communication with big tech social media platforms. And then sure enough, they were more than willing and, and quick to pull that story down at the government's request. And so American, the American voting public was deprived of information that would have been uh, beneficial to them at the ballot box. And so that, that at some level, that becomes election interference. That's why we've got to continue to build this wall of separation between tech and state. But that was phase one in the, the vast censorship enterprise and its growth and development. Again, started with the deep state, that, that seed was planted, but it was germinated and fertilized under the Biden administration from the stump uh, candidate Joe Biden and candidate Kamala Harris threatened to amend or repeal Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act if big tech social media didn't up their censorship game and begin censoring more speech that was disfavored by Biden and, and Harris. And then once they took uh, the White House, President Joe Biden from the White House lawn specifically accused Facebook of killing people by not censoring enough. Well, then senior officials from the White House communications team, Rob Flaherty and Andy Slavitt, were in direct communication, as demonstrated in emails, email traffic in March, April and May of 2021, where they're demanding that any posts related to vaccine hesitancy or uh, questioning the effectiveness of masks be taken down, uh, that they specifically targeted a post that was a meme of a uh, Leonardo DiCaprio questioning the, the effectiveness of a vaccine. They uh, specifically targeted a Tommy Lahren post, a Tucker Carlson video. And so they were directly demanding and 
cussing at big tech corporations saying, we demand you take this down and how dare you not do so at our, at our demand and request. I mean, that's scary stuff. And so that's the relationship of coercion and collusion that I'm talking about it demonstrated firsthand. And then it was further amplified by uh, Representative uh, Congressman Jordan's uh, Facebook files that he released last week as part of his congressional subpoena, where he demonstrated that the federal government actually pushed big tech social media beyond big tech's own internal censorship policies. Well, if that isn't then being done at the government's request, nothing ever will be, nothing ever could be. I mean, so they, we know they were that, lamenting. They were lamenting the unconstitutionality of it inside of Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I, clearly Facebook was saying, gosh, we don't want to violate the First Amendment, but the federal government has demanded that we do so. And they're going to try to <laughs> appeal, repeal or amend, you know, the, the cash cow, uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is a shield from civil liability that, we, that big tech needs to maintain its monopoly. And so, uh, again, that, that clearly demonstrates the coercion on behalf of the federal government. But then there's a third phase that you discuss, and it's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Administration. And that's what the trial court has identified as the likely nerve center of the vast censorship enterprise. Now, think about that. That's in the Department of Homeland Security. Think about that on two different levels. Number one, the censorship grew, enterprise grew so quickly and so uh, and with such scope and breadth that the federal government had to develop a new bureaucratic structure to manage it. Yep. It grew that quickly. But secondly, the Department of Homeland Security was an agency created in the wake of 9-11 to protect Americans from foreign attack and has now been weaponized against Americans in a betrayal of our trust and values. But when you get to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency itself, CISA, again, this is about uh, computer systems and roads and bridges. That's what they're supposed to be protecting. But the director goes out and says, well, there's neurological infrastructure as well. I mean, if that doesn't sound like something you'd hear from the Oceania Ministry of Truth, it's just incredible, the audacity, the brazen impunity with which these federal officials are willing to violate the First Amendment and expand the scope of their authority that was never given to them under statute. And again, a clear betrayal of our, our trust and values. But it shows that the censorship enterprise has grown beyond just COVID. COVID was the Trojan horse that got the enemy behind the gates. Now it's expanded to other topics. And basically anything that President Biden or his federal bureaucrats don't think we should be talking about, they think they have the right to silence. Yeah, anything from abortion, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, talk about the Ukraine. I mean, I think, um, who was it that, that was deposed that said that they didn't even want Americans really talking about the failures of the banking system because it could be a threat to national security if anybody thought to go and get their money out of the bank in a bank run or it's it's crazy. I want to drill down into something that you mentioned in in that three set. Um, so Elvis Chan was deposed by, by you know, you and, and your team, um, but it wasn't easy to get his name and the government didn't want to give it up. What ended up happening, if I'm not mistaken, was that Facebook accidentally coughed up that name. So what is the deal now? Because these social media companies are in a weird position. If they fight against the government, they're going to be at, you know, under the government cudgel saying like, we did this because we had to, they were threatening us. They'll lose section 230 almost any way they go. Can you explain the dynamics of that at all for people so they understand? Certainly. Well, Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act has been misinterpreted by the courts to allow big tech social media to use it as both a sword and a shield. But what it's done is it's shut down open market competition. And when you don't have open market competition, you don't have those natural safeguards and impulses that would be at play to prevent First Amendment uh, violations or government abuse of the monopoly or, or you know having coerced and colluded with it with a monopoly enterprise and so that that is the root of the problem and certainly uh, we've seen joe biden himself 
uh, and others in, in the uh, administration weaponize uh, Section 230 and, and you know a threat of uh, amendment or repeal or a threat of antitrust action uh, litigation against these big tech social media companies if they don't do the president and his uh, army of federal bureaucrats uh, bidding. And you're right. I mean, look, this has expanded into so many different topics. And you know, I, I would posit this. The founders understood the essential nature of the right to free speech. It's in the very first amendment to the constitution. The founders understood that these rights were given to us by God, not man. The whole purpose was to protect us from government. It is included with the right to religious liberty and the right to a free press, which are rights of conscience. It's no accident that those three rights are put together in the very first amendment uh, to the United States Constitution. And it didn't matter if in the 1700s, the right applied to pamphlets that uh, political activists would hang out in colonial America, or that that right would, would grow to newspapers in the early 1900s, or to radio in the 1920s and 30s, or television in the 1940s and 50s, or the internet in the 1990s, or big tech social media in the 2000s. The right is a timeless principle. No one would accept it if you were talking on your cell phone and uh, all of a sudden when you start talking about things the cell phone company doesn't like, they started muting. That would be bad enough. But what we're talking about here is much worse because, again, it's it's done at the demand of the federal government. So imagine if Joe Biden had the right to, to, sense, to, to mute your television screen or your radio or your cell phone when you started talking about things Joe Biden didn't like. No one would accept that. So why would we accept that on big tech social media platforms either? So we're at a we're at a pr- place right now where the government, the Biden administration is arguing once again that you don't have standing to bring this lawsuit as the state of Missouri. I mean, they've done this three times now and every time the judge has basically knocked it down. Even I believe the Fifth Circuit has knocked it down at least once on a mandamus petition. So why are they, you know, do they really believe that this argument has merit and what is the timeline after i know you guys go in in august in a couple in a, in a week or so right i mean what's the timeline after that till we start getting into real discovery in in the main case yeah that's right and so we've only just begun to scratch the surface we did preliminary discovery to get us to a preliminary injunction that preliminary injunction is going to has been a the biden department of justice has appealed that to the fifth circuit we go to court on august 10th in new orleans at the the uh, three-judge panel at the fifth circuit court of appeals to argue the, the case uh, we're confident in our legal position. And again, if you look at the judge's court order, it's narrowly tailored to protect constitutional rights. And so, again, uh, the audacity, the brazen impunity with which uh, Biden's Department of Justice, you know, ca- casts away uh, the First Amendment or is, is intent on violating Americans' First Amendment rights is, is, is frightening. But uh, we anticipate the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals will rule rather quickly and we'll be back down at the trial court and commence merits discovery. And you're right. That's where we're going to root out this vast censorship enterprise. We, we can leave no stone unturned. We've got to continue to to use this lawsuit and any other legal remedy at our at our disposal any other uh, tool at our disposal to to build this wall of separation between tech and state and to protect our fundamental rights to core political speech especially in the run-up to the 2024 election because as you've pointed out you know covid was the trojan horse that got the enemy behind the gates they appear to uh, the federal government appears based on the preliminary discovery to have outsourced some of these censorship enterprise to the election integrity program. It's almost as if they understood that as it's like a, a sign of consciousness of guilt that the federal officials understood that they were running up, uh, running afoul of the First Amendment. And so the very same people that were working on the censorship enterprise at CISA have now gone to work at the election integrity program, which is a quasi governmental agency, quasi uh, private organization. Uh, but they've, they've de- dedicated themselves to censoring 
uh, free speech on any number, any range of topics. And certainly the Biden's Department of Justice was noncommittal uh, when when uh, undergoing questioning by the court as to whether or not they would be willing to protect Americans' First Amendment rights. So we've got to get back down to the trial court and to marriage discovery and, and work with uh, due diligence and, and haste to continue to build that wall of separation between, between tech and state to protect the elect, uh, integrity of our elections. So are we, are you going to subpoena the, the big four tech companies as well? And, and do you expect a legal kind of wrangling challenge between the Facebook, you know, the Facebook and metas of the world and, and, and the state of Missouri and Louisiana and the other individual plaintiffs? Yeah, I mean, certainly we are in close coordination with the state of Louisiana, the private plaintiffs, and we'll weigh all options and take any steps necessary. You know, so much of it is dependent upon what the Fifth Circuit does. I mean, the Fifth Circuit could uphold the uh, trial court order, the preliminary injunction in whole. It could uphold it in part. It could remand it back to the trial court for an amendment to that court order to consider certain other topics. So we're really, we, it's it's too early to say precisely what the next steps are until we get through this procedural hurdle and see what the Fifth Circuit gives us, you know, we're confident in our legal position here and there will be ample time uh, for discovery and a broad uh, discovery request to ensure that we're rooting out this censorship enterprise anywhere it may be found. And I'll also, you know, again, uh, compliment Elon Musk and his uh, Twitter files. And, you know, he was willing to open up Twitter and show us the depth of depravity of some of the censorship enterprise. And certainly uh, Congressman Jordan, same thing, you know, applaud his efforts to show us it's like a ripple in a pond. You know, the lawsuit was the stone in the pond. Yep. And then you see these ripples that come out months later. And certainly uh, Congressman Jordan's evidence that he revealed from Facebook showed, you know, we can show you in the discovery uh, some of the things that the federal government was doing to Facebook and, and their, their direct response to Those. the federal government. But what Representative Jordan showed us, what Congressman Jordan showed us was internal Facebook response, mm -hmm. further ripples down the line. But again, it all corroborates that relationship of coercion and collusion. This wasn't Facebook acting on its own. It was acting at the behest and demand of the federal government in response to specific requests uh, from, coming from the White House and across a spectrum of federal bureaucratic agencies. I mean, if CISA didn't have their group of merry, merry people sitting around at their help desk, their censorship help desk, they Facebook and Twitter would never even have known these posts existed, let alone take action to take them down. And now we've got evidence that they were actually helping to craft policy as though they're the trust and safety uh, department at these social media companies. And they're nasty about it, too. Like Flaherty was really not kind um, about what he wanted. So I guess one last question before we go today, and this has been really, really great for everybody out there. Um, usually we have this kind of a thing happening and coming in at the end. And I know that you pushed for uh, this to be a class action lawsuit. It, it failed that that you know hurdle right now. But me, I was censored off of Twitter. I've been censored off of Facebook. I've been debanked. I've been all kind. I can't use PayPal. I'm censored. What if this if this goes the way we think it will, and you win? What does the everyday American, how can they rectify what's happened to them? Basically? Well, first of all, we can all celebrate the fact that we get our First Amendment right to free speech back. I mean, yeah. I think that was my tweet on July 4th, like, happy birthday, America. You get your First Amendment free speech back, and we'll keep fighting to do that. The wall of separation between tech and state is absolutely essential to protect all of our rights. And, you know, whether there's class certification or not, it is a nationwide injunction. Mm. And we'll keep pushing forward with that nationwide injunction. It's the state of Missouri v. Biden. Louisiana is, is on board and certainly their private plaintiffs, but all Americans who have been censored on big tech social media platforms and any American. It's not just those speakers 
who have been censored. That's the important thing to remember too. You might've been speaking, but how many listeners do you have that were deprived of the information that you would have gotten to them? It's the hearers of the information. And so it's an exponential number of individuals whose uh, constitutional rights to say and hear what they, they choose absent government censorship, those rights have been violated. And that's why the nationwide injunction is so important and we'll keep fighting to, to achieve that objective. This is the most important civil rights case to in modern history, hands down. There's no doubt about it. Um, I was saying it the day you filed the complaint and people are finally starting to catch up with how important this is. Attorney General, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Oops, and there we go. That was uh, the interview with Attorney General Andrew Bailey on Missouri v. Biden, which literally does dovetail into this indictment, honestly, if you think oh, it's, about- It's 100%. Uh, as I was bouncing on my rebounder, I'm saying, well, it's good that we did this today because what is all of the, the indictments, if not just another censorship arm? Yeah, against what they consider to be misinformation. They're just now criminalizing it against a former president and presidential candidate. So quite a day. You know, it's uh, it's just crazy um, because it's not even just it's just the endorsing of one consolidated opinion and that goes against everything even from a religious level because we are talking you know you talk about how the the state you know the the protection of religious freedom religious to, pra to practice religion however and there would be no state endorsed religion or whatever it is um all of this all of this censorship is rooted in religious ideology obviously it's it's religious ideology for people who mostly believe that they're non-theist, but they are. That, that's that's what it is. I mean, what? Why? If I, it's, I don't know. I think it's. I think it's all connected, and I'm glad for people like this who are who are you know on the front lines of some movements that are actually um, saving us and it's the, giving it's us. The some, only positive thing going right now, this case, honestly, it really is. This case really is. It's a breath of fresh air and it's something to hope for because if we once you lose that speech altogether and we become Europe and uh it's it's over. Um we're gonna bounce quickly while you wipe the spread the sweat from your brow back to the presumed identities of the six unnamed co conspirators. Um, and then we're going to end for the day. So co-conspirator one, an attorney they think is Giuliani, co-conspirator one. And they, they say why in here. Co-conspirator two, I'll put this in the show notes. Another attorney, they think this is John Eastman because of how they talk about him in the indictment. Co-conspirator three, Sidney Powell. Co-conspirator four, a former Justice Department official may be... Justice Department Attorney Jeffrey Clark, who was the acting assistant attorney general for the DOD Civil Division at the time. Co-conspirator five um, could be, and they're not real sure about this, Kenneth Ch Chesborough. I've never heard of him before. Six, um, they're saying is, in this, they're saying could be Jenny T Ginny Thomas, but it's not. It, let me see something real quick. Hold on. Jason Miller, six. Let me see if I can find the Fox News clip. Hold on. Um, 
Fox. Jason. Just bear with me. I saw it on Fox. Bearing. Bearing away. Bear with me. Here it is. Now learning that the senior campaign advisor who is CNN. signified in this indictment as one of the people who was giving Donald Trump the harshest uh, assessment that there was no fraud after the election that would overturn the vote. That person is Jason Miller. I have been able to confirm that. I've reached out to a representative of his and received no comment back. But I have been able to confirm that that is indeed Jason Miller. And this episode is just one of the highlights of how the special counsel's office was using information that the close advisors to Donald Trump on the campaign, people who even stuck with him after the 2020 election, Miller continued to work with Donald Trump, continues to work with him. These are people who were telling him that there wasn't fraud and that Donald Trump and the alleged co-conspirators or the co-conspirators in this indictment who are not charged at this time, that those people were doing something anomalous with what the campaign knew, that there wasn't fraud. And this, we are now learning that the senior- And sorry, it replayed. It replayed, but that's, that's what they're saying. That's Again, in my, in my world, to see to hear somebody um, color that in about there being some kind of disunity in the in the ranks of an administration and or uh, you know a corporation somewhere or whatever it is among its leadership that there's some kind of there's a an ongoing changing of hands of power board of uh, you know board a board of education somewhere a board of directors over here that there are just differing views on how something happened uh it maybe it shows that there is an embarrassing level of disunity in one group of people but to ex but to expand and explode that outward and have it you know, you know, declare the need for this to be something that is absolutely criminal. It, it's and not, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't satisfy that. Right. Correct. It doesn't. There just, were a number of people around Donald Trump telling him that all of this was nonsense. There were a number of them. We know that for fact now because we've seen their depositions. But that doesn't mean that anything that he did was criminal. Like that just means those people didn't think that what was being fed was true. Well, because well, this is the media's. This is the media's number. They have the, the one. They don't. They have a couple of ponies in their uh, their stable there. But this is one of the biggest tricks that they have. It's just focus in on the chaos surrounding Donald Trump or any of their targets. Chaos. It's just a, nobody knows which direction is up. It's just whatever people are telling him. It's not real. He won't believe it. It was so well, okay. So what? A That's not a crime. Disagree. It's not a crime. To a bunch of people disagree on something. That's what it comes down to. But they are drama queens, and this is all part of the the build up toward the bigger acts of true sedition, treason, and uh, and subterfuge, and that is what's going on at the DOJ. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to hand over predicate for a rogue Department of Justice to go ahead and, and really wage the war they wish Donald Trump was, was waging in the first place. Because then all this dramatics, all this the melodrama would not be necessary, where they have to send little girls out into congressional hearings to uh, to lie about Donald Trump trying to strangle his driver, his limo uh -huh. driver, I mean, 
the, we, listen, we really forget all the layers to this BS that have been it's, have it's, been heaped on. It's so ridiculous. That's why there's a lot of layers to the it. Comic on books. It's, they made that comic book about him attacking, throwing things. We forget it. There's so many layers at this. At point. the end of the day, the whole case basically is predicated on the fact that Donald Trump knew there wasn't any election fraud that was significant enough to overturn the election and still went out and did all the things that he did anyway. So they're going to have to, as the first attorney said, prove that they either the election was stolen or they knew that it was um, or or they had some idea or believed that it would be. It's all it's all crazy. And, and the judge isn't going to let them do it. So again, this judge is not going to let them do it. You saw what they did even to... Dur- uh, Durham, when he was trying to, um, can you know, get get Sussman convicted, they weren't allowed to. Durham, in D.C., wasn't allowed to use half the stuff he had. The judge barred it out in D.C. Just be prepared for what the D.C. court is going to do, right or wrong. Obviously wrong. Just be prepared for it. And that's it for today, guys. You have been listening to the Dark Delight podcast with Frankie Val on the drums and Beans. You can hear us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2.30 Eastern Time on TuneIn, Stitcher, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and RadioInfluence.com. And Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time on TuneIn, on uh, Getter, Rumble, and on Twitter. And then check out Frank's show Monday through Friday. No show Friday for either of us, correct? Right. Um, on QuiteFrankly.tv or streaming here on Rumble. And we'll see you guys back here with probably plenty to talk about on Monday. Later. Later.